This program and its online content contains audio and information about traumatic events that may be triggering to those who have experienced something similar. It may also be unsuitable for younger listeners. My first priority is my family. I'm not here for myself, I'm here for my family. Because I have children. Welcome to Migration Trail, the project that uses maps, data and audio to join the dots of a story spread across Europe and beyond. I am here for six months. I'm still waiting for my interview. Goldfam, who arrived in Greece from Pakistan in early 2016, is waiting for an interview to apply for asylum. He fled Pakistan in fear of his life and arrived in the EU without his family. And even in six months, maybe somebody died there because they are still live there with problem. Okay, I am safe here, but my family is still not safe there. Waiting has become a defining part of the life of someone seeking asylum now, especially in Greece. You rush to leave your country, you hurry through transit countries, you finally arrive in the EU, and then all there is to do is wait. A year before Goldfam arrived, though, things were a little different. Back then, it was rare to spend too long on one of the islands in Greece. During the spring, summer and fall of 2015, there was a huge spike in the number of migrants crossing the Aegean Sea from Turkey to nearby Greek islands, several of which were only a few miles across the water. The route was open and shorter, and therefore less risky than crossing from North Africa to Italy. And the price had dropped. Syrians were leaving the country in droves because of an ongoing civil war. The deteriorating conditions and a lack of international aid made it impossible to live there. With no end to the war in sight, even Syrians in Turkey were losing hope of returning soon. But they weren't the only ones crossing. Most people didn't want to stay in Greece, though. They had their sights set on countries in northern Europe, like Germany and Sweden, and wanted to claim asylum there. And in the summer of 2015, the easiest way to get there from Greece went overland via the Balkans. But while Greece is part of the Schengen zone, the zone within which there are no border controls, the countries surrounding it are not. So crossing a series of non-EU, non-Schengen countries like Macedonia and Serbia before re-entering the EU and Schengen in Hungary meant a series of potentially challenging border crossings ahead. People didn't have the papers to legally cross them. One of the busiest crossings that summer was at Idomeni, the last train station in Greece, on the Greek border with Macedonia, and about four kilometres to the east of the official border crossing. That summer, people were effectively being waved through, on the assumption that they didn't plan to stay in the Balkans, but would keep travelling north. It was this de facto humanitarian corridor that allowed so many people to make this journey in 2015 and early 2016. And yet, for all the significance of this border, there wasn't a lot to see when you got there. What should we do? Where is the bar? Here. It's the blue, the blue sign. 
you could be standing right next to it and not know. You have to wait there. We think of a border as something physical, but in fact, it's a much more complex set of mechanisms. Sometimes it feels more like an idea. By August 2015, many people arrived at Idomeni by bus directly from Athens. A few weeks earlier, they'd been making the trip on foot, usually from Thessaloniki, 80 kilometers away. Uh, did you get water? Yes, thank you. Food? Uh, yeah. You okay? And, uh, any medicines? You need any, any medicines? No, thank you very much. Okay. <laughs> About a thousand people passed through here each day. Few stayed for longer than that. There wasn't much here, but there was food, medical help, and a handful of volunteers. Water. Thomas was one of them, and so was Christina, a dentist who was helping with minor first aid. A lot of people had blisters from walking, cuts and sores on their legs or insect bites. But you saw the train that passed before? It was empty. And every time it passes, I'm like, can't we just And though no one was being stopped from crossing into Macedonia, they weren't exactly free to cross when they wanted to. Macedonian border police were there, trying to keep the situation under control, sometimes letting people through, sometimes not, and trying to control how many went through at a time. It really just depended on who was on duty. Because there's so many, they're separating them in groups of probably 40, 50 people, because that's what, what they will pass. They're not going to let everyone pass at the same time, so they will... Let a group through and then they wait a little while and then they will let another group through. And now more police came from the other side to help out. The Macedonian police start to allow people across the border. There are small children, pregnant women, even people in wheelchairs. Those who are receiving medical attention or food drop everything and rush across. Okay, okay, no problem, food, no problem. No problem, yeah. Good luck. Come. Thank you. Okay. One moment. Ferry, trek se na psomi, ferry, 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 Every day it's a different story. It's every day it's different. Once in Macedonia, people usually crossed into Serbia and then Hungary, where they entered the Schengen zone and were able to travel reasonably freely without fear of certain border checks. From there, people could continue their journey to Austria, Germany, and beyond. And so it continued for another few months into early 2016. But crossing these borders easily didn't last long. Steph Maracek was a volunteer at Idomeni in early 2016. During um, February, March, they uh, tightened the conditions under which they were accepting the people to pass through. And uh, eventually they forbade uh, people from um, countries other than Syria. Uh, first, I think it was Afghanis who got uh, forbidden 
to pass through the border, then it was Iraqis, and then they closed, closed the border altogether. And that was the point when... Uh, the number of people taking the Balkan route was so great, more than 750,000, 16 times as many as the year before, that in late 2015, some countries threatened to close their borders. Macedonia began to build a fence along its border with Greece, including at Idomeni. By the time the EU-Turkey deal came into effect a number of months later, the humanitarian corridor itself was effectively closed. There would be no more crossings into Macedonia from Greece, or at least not as easily as before. There had been rumours that the border might close, and many people rushed to Idomeni to try and cross it before it did. But only a handful were being allowed through each day, and new arrivals joined the back of the queue. And uh, they got stuck in Idomeni. Eventually that was uh, 14, 15,000 uh, people. It was maybe 10 uh, degrees Celsius and it was, it was raining every day quite heavily for three weeks in a row, two, two weeks, three weeks in a row. And um, people started to get sick and, and uh, the services uh, were really bad as much as um, anybody tried and uh, I mean they were still living in the tents and uh, MSF uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers uh, they were basically working towards uh, providing uh, bigger scale facilities as in uh, more permanent uh, toilets, showers uh, for the people uh, which was stopped by Greek state of course because um, Greek, Greek state and the European Union actually couldn't, uh, could never allow uh, that many people staying that close to the border. And uh, it was drawing too much attention, too much attention to European politics, too much attention to European Union not actually doing enough. The camp at Idomeni was closed in late May of 2016. 8,000 of the people, those who hadn't already left, were redistributed by bus to other camps in Greece, further away from the border. They would load uh, people on buses and uh, bring them somewhere. Then uh, they would bring in uh, the riot cops. It actually went without violence completely. But uh, they brought in riot cops to, just to make a point, just to have them visible and uh, make uh, clear that it can also go other way than uh, peacefully. Since the reasonably straightforward route through the Balkans closed, around 60,000 people have been unable to leave Greece. Those who arrived before March the 20th, 2016, when the EU-Turkey deal came into effect, could legally be in Greece and move around the country but they couldn't leave. They were supposed to be relocated from Greece to other European countries. But those who have applied for relocation, family reunification or asylum have a long wait. And those who lose patience and try to cross out of Greece without having the proper papers will have their claim invalidated. The Greek asylum service is massively understaffed. They just don't have enough people to do this. This is a long-term work and also... Polly Pallister-Wilkins specialises in humanitarian intervention and border control. Greece is a country with very strong, very good laws that actually protect many people's human rights, but a bad governance structure. I mean, they need hundreds and hundreds of people to work on this. 
um, and they don't have hundreds and hundreds of people. Not people with expertise, not people with language skills, not people, a lot of them weren't paid for a long time. I mean, and Greece, you know, as we know, is going through huge periods of austerity. Greece has problems. If you want to apply for asylum in Greece, family reunification or relocation elsewhere, you have to Skype the asylum office to make an appointment to submit your application. Hussein Omar from Syria was in a camp in Greece for four months. There was a lot of uncertainty around what he should do. Then he heard about the relocation programme, a programme in which migrants are sent to another country in the EU once it's been determined that they're eligible. The relocation programme has 10 Skype accounts, depending on which language you speak, Arabic, Farsi, Dari, Urdu, etc. Which sounds like adequate resources, but if you consider that more than 50,000 people need to use them, and that the accounts are open for a single hour, two or three days out of the week, it's not. Hussein tried calling on Skype every day, but it was only after a month that he got through. Right at the end of his Skype interview, when he'd answered all the questions and just needed to make a photo with the webcam to complete his file, he got cut off. He tried calling back every day, but the next time he got through was more than six weeks later. He got an appointment at the asylum office two days after that, applied for asylum and the relocation programme, and was issued a document that means he can't be deported until his asylum procedure is complete. Three months later, however, he was still waiting to hear which EU country would take him. When the borders closed for the, the Greek situation, it was just unbearable. You know, people tell me that they just can't bear the situation of being stuck here in Greece. And this has really had a huge impact on their general well-being, but particularly their mental health well-being, as you can imagine. Carol Neji is the medical coordinator for the French so section of Médecins Sans Frontières, or MSF, which has set up three sites in Greece to help migrants. Primarily everybody wants to get out of Greece, nobody wants to stay in Greece. So they have um, quite a high level of anxiety, um, they're frustrated in the fact that they're stuck here but they're unable to work, etc. So this is a big concern, so they're anxious about what's going to happen in the next few months with regard to their living arrangements. So we see a whole raft of symptoms. but. People are also affected by the past, obviously. They're coming from areas where they've been severely traumatised. So In addition to cultural and psychological difficulties, there's also the problem that some nationalities have priority in the asylum process. Syrians are given first preference, obviously. So you find that the Afghanis, who have been here sometimes for six, six months or more, um, and who have previously been in refugee camps for a very long time in other places, are completely frustrated that they're down the pecking order for the uh, application process. You have a lot of um, situations where you have part of the family is here, but the husband, for example, is in Germany. So communication with them is quite restricted. They don't speak to them very much. They're having to cope on their own with this situation and in some of the camps, you know, it's um, the case where women are scared to go to the bathroom at night because of the insecurity inside the camps. And uh, this causes a huge amount of anxiety. 
There's a lot of single men in these camps, etc. So, you know, they're, they're, they're very vulnerable. And, like Carol said, sometimes even the most basic of things, like food, for example, which ought to be a positive thing, can be a real source of frustration. Part of the culture, particularly for Middle Eastern cultures, is that this is what the woman does on a daily basis, is prepares the food, you know. So this is also taking away a big part of her self-worth and her, her hold over her family is the fact that she can't provide for the family. And same for the husband, you know, the sort of the whole structure behind that sort of empowerment, personal empowerment for the, the head of the family is to provide and cook the food in the way that, you know, they want to present the food to the family. It's completely um, destroyed a lot of that social fabric for them. And that's, I think... The and then there are the more obvious things that need to be treated. We have a lot of people now, because um, they're stuck here, um, and we do get the whole generational you know, package. We have the grandmas and the grandpas and the young kids and the, the mothers and fathers. So we have a lot of people who um, are coming more with chronic diseases, people with diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, thyroid disease, that need long-term medication and regular follow-up for their um, treatment. And uh, this interruption to their treatment, particularly for diabetics, for example, can severely impact on their mortality. Abdurrahman, a student from Syria we've been following in this series, was lucky enough to get to Greece in the summer of 2015, together with his family, while the Balkan route was still open. For them, there was no waiting, he and his family were constantly on the move from one country to the next, following thousands of others. After arriving on the Greek island of Lesvos, they took a ferry to Athens and from there, a bus to Idomeni. At like uh, four kilometres from the Macedonian borders, we, ha we had to walk following a uh, railway. There's nothing uh, around you, nothing at all. Only like... Uh, abandoned uh, cafe on the way like it's a it's like a scary movie <laughs> and then you'd get uh, to the macedonian borders and police are letting people cross like in groups we crossed we had to walk uh, a little bit more to get to the first city which uh, had a train station there and volunteers, like, they were waiting for us to give us food. So we got to the station by sunset and uh, we bought the tickets. We waited for the train a couple, couple of hours. Uh, it turned out you don't need tickets, you just need to be strong a little bit to push people away and get on the train through the window or the door. And my two brothers got left behind, so they followed, they catched up with us uh, the next morning. There was police, like, uh, at the official checkpoint. They wouldn't let you cross. They would guide you to just cross illegally through mountains. And you have to climb a lot of high hills to get there. We arrived in Serbia and we 
we walk like uh, also four kilometers and you walk there's a there's this huge long queue of people like uh, it's as long as you can see and they're all walking so you just follow since the Balkan route closed, it's now harder, more expensive and more dangerous, but not impossible. Ruben Anderson, who researches irregular migration and border controls in southern Europe, thinks the idea and practice of more secure borders is flawed. We've uh, created a system uh, or an industry of border and migration control that keeps on feeding on its own failures. It's a system uh, in which uh, this drama we're seeing on the high seas and at the borders of Europe keeps being replicated through our very control measures, which then feeds again back into the media cycle, which then feeds into more reinforcement and the cycle starts again. One of Rubin's areas of focus has been how Europe has increased the securitization of its borders, and that has changed a lot in the 21st century. Border surveillance has increased. Fences are being built where before the border was simply an imaginary line. The passports we carry now have biometric data about us embedded in them, but passports themselves are a relatively new thing, not to mention heavily controlled borders. Well, there's uh, a bit of a um, conundrum here for European policymakers. How far do they want to go in this border security approach? There's certainly strong calls being made for just a very tough, punitive border security approach. Learning, for instance, from Australia, which has a very uh, uh, tough stop the boats policy, which has raised all sorts of legally human rights issues uh, over the past uh, years. The problem with that is that in the European cases, you cannot practically impose a similar type of punitive system. The coastlines, the land borders, are way too long, there are too many countries involved. It's simply not going to work practically, politically or legally. But even if you do try, what is happening is uh, on a global scale. It's not just a globalization of these migration routes, but also a globalization, a parallel globalization of the security response. You see now, for instance, uh, some nationalities such as Afghans who earlier arrived into Australia are now choosing the European route. When Israel similarly has put in place a very draconian policy on its borders, built fences and so on, the Eritreans who pre previously arrived there were now seeking the way towards Europe. There's a globalization of routes here. You're not really going to deal with the problem by just pushing it somewhere else. It's going to keep replicating itself along another slice of the borderline in Europe is not going to find that easy since it has very long uh, borders to uh, consider. Since 2015, a number of countries along the EU's external borders have built fences to keep people out. Hungary, Greece, Bulgaria, Slovenia. Even countries within the borderless Schengen zone, like France and Austria, are building fences and increasing policing. But the big question, of course, is, does all this border security work? Fences stop people, but they stop them for a period of time. They don't stop people entirely. And they don't stop people when they can simply go a different way. The way the borders work now is also money-making for more, not just the smugglers. Right? It doesn't just generate profit for the smugglers, it also generates profits for the large security industry within Europe that now exists to police and enforce those borders. So it's a vicious cycle. Right? Everyone is making money from this be they, you know, various security actors selling 
various technologies to border police that they can effectively police the borders more efficiently or the smugglers. Heat sensors, drones, boats, satellites, software, all of these kinds of things, right? This is a massive industry and most of these large-scale, at least the large-scale defence contractors who make a lot of this stuff are also actually mostly partly majority owned by the member states themselves. Everyone's making money from it, apart from, yeah, the refugees, the people who are on the move. But is there an easy, simple solution? Well, yes, there is a very simple and easy solution to the issue of smuggling, and that is to have safe and legal routes. Will that happen politically? No. Migration policy is a hot topic and hugely divisive. This makes it hard for governments to come up with a solution that satisfies everyone. But there's more. To open up the to the safe and legal route, I mean, that you would suddenly lose the need for all of this particular uh, use, for all of this particular um, security, technology, defence contractors that you know have all moved over the last 20 years from simply supplying state armies into supplying police and policing kind of uh, uh, technologies and, 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 and infrastructures. So... It would, be, it would be a recalibration of an entire economy and the politics behind that economy, and I don't think that's going to happen. Migration routes tend to adapt to increased security or an increase in red tape when it comes to applying for asylum. As more people embark on these journeys, more money is spent to try and stop them So the routes shift, but then so does the security infrastructure. It's a vicious circle. And then, of course, these same systems, these same infrastructures created along one slice of the borders have been replicated somewhere else where routes have now moved. So you just keep on reproducing this type of of physical uh, presence of the border control industry. Yeah, it's a bit eerie sometimes traveling along European borders and seeing, for instance, these detention centers built hastily to lock up all these boat migrants who arrived from West Africa in earlier years, now standing pretty much empty, unused, similarly along southern European, southern Spanish coasts, where you have these uh, once in a while ad hoc arrivals, but then the rest of the time they're just empty, eerie uh, reception and detention centers and so on and so forth, and radar systems that don't really serve much purpose since people are not using this route anymore. So you have all this investment, you need to keep it going, you need to keep the staff there, but routes have moved somewhere else. On our next episode, The Long Wait. We came here, they, they told us that European country, European people, that there's a justice, there's a democracy. But we came and see almost nothing. Migration Trail is part of a 10-day real-time online experience. Go to our interactive website, migrationtrail.com, for more infographics on the issues you've heard in this episode. While you're there, you can follow reconstructed journeys based on real experiences and to see migration mapped in a whole new way. This podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and our website, migrationtrail.com. 
Migration Trail is made by Alison Killing, Josie Gardner, Sarah Sae, Thomas Leverstro, Asha Kamen, and Anique C. Narration by me, Marnie Chesterton. Additional fact-checking by Benjamin Thomas White. The music was composed and performed by Bora Yoon. The Migration Trail project has been funded by a Wired and the Space Creative Innovation Fellowship, the Creative Industries Fund NL, the Netherlands Film Fund, Dutch Media Fund and Arts Council England. Further support has come from the Fine Acts Foundation, Autodesk and Battersea Arts Centre. Thank you.